I'm going to read Jude verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Well, I would like to consider the journey of life this morning. All of us start in a cradle and all of us end in a grave. These are two certainties. Job was a man who at one time lost everything in this world. His children, his servants, his flocks of cattle, his camels, and even the house that he lived in. In modern day terms, he'd suffered the sort of catastrophe that the people living in that Grenville Tower in London suffered when it went up in smoke a few months ago. Even though it was worse than that, because for Job, he lost his children. He lost his livelihood. What did he say at the end of it all? In verse 21 of Job chapter 1, he said this. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How many of us would be able to say that when everything in life, every crutch you've had, every dream you've had, has turned into ashes? For many of us, life is about gathering as much as we can, while we can, and hoping that we have enough for ourselves and our children. Many are obsessed by leaving some kind of a legacy, not just a financial legacy, particularly true of prime ministers. Maybe your prime minister is thinking of what kind of legacy is he going to leave for future generations? And then the frustration of finding that the next prime minister undoes everything that he's done. And then we know that for the best prime ministers, there might be a chapter in a history book. There might be several books written. But for many, they will just be a footnote in history, remembered by an increasingly few number of people. We all remember Winston Churchill, all of us. But... You name the English Prime Ministers in between, now and then, and even the Australian Prime Ministers, and I expect you'd be pressed to remember them all. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, that great king, summed up the futility of life, I thought, rather well. 
I should say the futility of life without God. Because I don't believe life is futile. But life without God is futile. And listen to what Solomon says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here we have Solomon at the height of his powers. He had everything. And when the queen of Sheba went to visit, she fainted in her spirit when she saw the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon. And this is what he has to say about it all. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or if you don't like the word vanity, all is futile. It's the same word. What profit hath a man of all his labour which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Some things won't change, even in, even in Australia, which is a, a relatively modern country. I, I came here 37 years ago. I hope I may have got that wrong. 34 years ago, first time. And it's, it's rather lovely, actually, because there are things that haven't changed. A lot has changed, but there are still a lot of things that haven't. And I found the same when I went to Hong Kong. I was last in there in 1987. It's had a change of governments, in that now the Chinese have um, authority, although there's meant to be a 50-year um, sort of stopgap. But actually, I was surprised with the familiarity of things. There is a familiarity in this world that goes on from generation to generation. It's just that there are new people living in those houses. And some of you, I expect, have had to downsize or are considering downsizing your house. Or maybe your parents are. Or your grandparents. Somebody else is going to live in those familiar walls. Somebody else is going to have those dreams that you had. Someone else is going to play in those places that you played in climb the trees that you climbed. See, that's the cycle of life. It goes on and on. And if you don't know God, you think that's all there is to life. Just this world. See, Solomon was really saying that a life without God is futile and pointless. And in one place he says this, and this sums up life for so many. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labour. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. And that's what for many life is about. And people who live good lives, well, they have a good job, and they're fulfilled in it, and they probably do good in the community too, and they leave with a good name. But is that all there is to life? Because I suggest to you that it leaves... A question. Is this all? Because somewhere deep down you're not satisfied. All of us, at one point in our life, maybe several points in our life, ask ourselves that old chestnut. What is the point of life? 
If I asked for a show of hands, I would be surprised if there was one hand that didn't go up. If I said, put your hand up, if you asked that question, I think you'd all put your hand up. And if you didn't put your hand up, I'd say, well, ask it now, and then you can put your hand up. Because I think we all need to ask that question. What is the point of life? The problem is that most of us ask the question, don't get an answer, so we pass on. And the problem is we get busier and busier. If you're a student at school, you're working hard. If you're then a diligent student at university, you might work even harder. You might not. But you're, if you're not working hard, you'll be full of other activities. And then you've got to get a job. And that job, you have to work hard. And you're expected to. And then you've got a family. And you're concerned about your family. And suddenly these questions of life, they suddenly get a bit irrelevant. They fall into the background until perhaps you get diagnosed with some terminal disease. And you're left having been faced with that question again. What's going to happen when I die? What's going to happen when my parents die? Or my brother or my sister? It's a question that won't go away. It's a question that I asked myself when I was at school. When I was 14, I tried to be a Christian. I got confirmed. I went through the sort of process that you're meant to go through. My sister got £100 when she was confirmed, and I have to say, at the back of my mind, I thought I'd get £100. In fact, I got £5 from my godfather, so it's, that served me right. And I didn't actually find the answer. I wanted to. I wanted to be serious about my faith, but I didn't know God, so I couldn't be. I went to communion. They used to have an optional communion once a week at school, and I went along to that for a few times, and then that sort of tailed off. I carried on believing in God, but he made no difference to my life. And then, by the time I left school, I'd met one of the masters at school who was actually, he was a good friend of mine, he was an atheist. I must admit, I thought his life was a bit hollow. He used to love Gilbert and Sullivan, perhaps you all do too, but that's, Gilbert and Sullivan really was all there was. Because there was nothing beyond it. But still I was seduced into this thought, or well, maybe God doesn't exist. And so when I left school, I thought, right, I've got a choice to make. If God exists, I've got to serve him. If God doesn't exist, then I will live life for myself. And that's a fair, that's a fair assessment of life, isn't it? I think. And so, well, because you may think I made the wrong decision next, because I thought, well, I've tried to live my life as if God exists, and it's made no difference. So I know I'll try living my life as though he doesn't exist and see what happens then. And so I jumped on my aeroplane to go to Australia, where I spent my gap year in 1983. And it was actually just before, so at the end of 1982. And I remember thinking to myself as I was on that Thai Airways jet taking me to Australia, right, well, God doesn't exist. That means there's no judgment. And suddenly into my mind came Hitler and Stalin. Are they not going to have to answer for what they've had to do? not according to my new theory. And then I realized there's only one law that matters, only one commandment that mattered. It's the 11th commandment. Do you know the 11th commandment? Thou shalt not be caught. Because I knew if I could get away with it in this life, then I was all right. And how many people live their lives like that? But in, the, in my subconscious, I knew that wasn't true. 
but I carried on regardless. And you know, I had some narrow squeaks when I was in Australia. When I was in Queensland, I nearly got caught up in a rip with a friend of mine. Thankfully, we got to shore, just. I, I picked up a lift in Victoria by a disreputable character. I think I was lucky to get away with my life. When I was in Bangkok at the end of my trip, I stepped out into the road without looking. A car missed me by inches. I still didn't believe. And I should say, I met a really nice couple in Melbourne. I wish I could find them again. They were Christians and they gave me leaflets. I met my cousins in Canberra and they made a difference to my life. But I still didn't believe. I didn't change the way I thought. And when I went home at, um, at Christmas in December 1983, I stood in my father's study and I said to him, Daddy, I don't, I'm not coming to church this Christmas because I don't believe in God anymore. And do you know what my father said? Couldn't believe, he completely took the wind out of my sails. He turned around to me and said, you're a fool. You had a guardian angel watching over you when you were in Australia. And he was right when I, when I just, just recapped those incidents where I could so easily have been swept off the face of this earth. I thought about that. I never forgot those words and I did go to church that Christmas thinking to myself as I looked up at the ceiling, maybe God exists. Well, it was to be two months before I finally surrendered and I discovered that God did exist and that he had sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, that I would not go to hell, but by trusting in his work for me on the cross, I could go to heaven. Let's go back to our verse in um, Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. You see, that verse is speaking to Christians, but it could also be speaking to non-Christians. But we have to slightly refocus it to get that understanding. Because we all are born into a fallen world. More than that, we're born with a fallen nature. I said this yesterday, but since some of you weren't here, I can repeat it, and forgive me for those who were. But how many parents have had to teach their children how to be naughty? You've had to teach them how to be good, not naughty. I didn't have to have anyone to teach me to be naughty. I had lots of ideas of my own. Tragically today, in prison, people do get taught to be even worse than they already are. But that's another story. We start with this inward tendency, this inward inclination to do wrong. And David sums it up rather well, sums it up rather well in Psalm 51 verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, we came out of our mother's womb, not as an innocent little baby who could do no harm, but with an inner being, an inner conscience that was off target. We had a nature in us that was actually not 
going to do the right thing when given an opportunity. And that's why we live increasingly in a world full of, dare I say it, feral kids. We have them in London. I prosecuted a case a few weeks ago with a 14-year-old who got on his bicycle with an 18-year-old looking for somebody to stab. And they found a 16-year-old, a budding rugby professional. And they stabbed him. And he was very lucky not to die. Thankfully, he didn't. But these things happen everywhere, friends. Increasingly, don't they? They have postcode gangs now, don't they? I don't know if they have postcode gangs in Australia. They have them in England. They used to have them in the States. It's gangs of kids who, who, who terrorise the area they live in because they haven't got parents setting them an example. They haven't got a moral code. They're living by their own code from their fallen natures. And it is destructive because it's not contained. Everything has been affected by fallen man. The first man, Adam, fell after Eve gave him the forbidden fruit. She'd been deceived into eating it. He was disobedient. He knew he shouldn't. He ate it. As a result, God judged him and he judged the world. And the world has never been the same since. We'll never recover what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. And yet, it has to be said, even in this fallen world, it's a beautiful world, isn't it? When we look at the artists, they, if they've, done, if they've be begun to capture the tree that they're painting, or the landscape, or the person, you think they're a brilliant artist. And yet, most of the world thinks that this world most of the inhabitants of this world think that this world was an accident. It doesn't make sense, does it? This world, even in its fallen state, is beautiful beyond what we can imagine. And we've had the pleasure of seeing some of the beauty of Australia. And it's very beautiful, as I think we'd all concede, are other parts of the world. You see, we are living in a world that's gone wrong. And you and I, before we became Christians, probably all experienced that sense that, of praying, sort of saying our prayers and feeling that they're just bouncing off the ceiling. We live in a world where appalling suffering happens. Why? People blame God. But the truth is completely different. It's because, as a result of our sin, we have been cut off with God, from God. God is not the person responsible for the tragedies we see around us. It is as a result of us going our own way. And Paul sums it up very well in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, the children of wrath, even as others. 
So what's the result of us being cut off from God? We're dead to him. We are imprisoned in our own lusts and selfish desires. Which is why we live in a me world, don't we? It's all about me. It was once about God, man glorifying God. But now it's all about me. And have you heard of that expression, me time? I must have some me time. Well, actually, I'm afraid everyone is living me time all the time. That is life without God. And it's a prison because we are imprisoned in the lusts of the flesh. We do the things we want to do. And we can't get out of that cycle. And in 1 John 2, the world and the ambitions of the world are summed up. In 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Just have a think about that. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the things that my flesh wants. You know, there are a lot of things, aren't there, that drive us. And so many people would spend their lives indulging their flesh, eating and drinking and, and taking drugs and even doing innocent things, fun things. You know, in Australia, they, is it called the Grey Caravan Route? I'm not sure what it is. Nothing wrong with it, but they live for going from one sunspot to the other. And when it's winter, you leave Melbourne and you go to Cairns, or you go to the Northern Territories, and then you come back when summer comes round again, and you live in a caravan, and you go fishing, and you shoot kangaroos to live, or whatever else you can find. And that's your life. It's great, isn't it? But where does it end? The lust of the eyes. That gets us all into trouble, doesn't it? The things we indulge our eyes with. Let's have a think. How much time is wasted on the beauty industry? and indulging the things that our eyes look at. And then the pride of life. I must be the best. That's how much trouble does that get us all into? And you see the tennis stars, the fallen tennis stars, and the rising tennis stars. It's all about ambition, isn't it? And if it's not tennis, we've just had that this week, it's going to be some other sport. And if it isn't a sport, it's your industry that you've got into, your job, rising to the top and not minding who you tread on on the way up the pride of life. It's not of the Father. It's not what God has commanded us to do. It's of the world. It's a world cut off from God. And remember this, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. It all goes. You only know, you know, if you're ill, it's funny, isn't it, that all the things that you might have wanted to do, when you're ill, you don't want to do any of them because you haven't got the appetite to do them anymore. Your appetite for food's gone. Your appetite for exercise is gone. And then at the end of your life, you can imagine, can't you? If you've got some terminal illness, you don't want to do anything. You might just want to curl up and die. And that's it. it I love the way it ends, though. 
but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Friends, we don't have to leave ourselves in this fallen state. There is one who is able to keep us from falling or for the non-Christian to pick us up from having fallen. And that's the message of the cross. There's a marvellous picture in the Old Testament where the people of Israel had crossed the Red Sea. The problem was, having crossed the Red Sea, going through the wilderness, they had nothing to eat. And they started grumbling. God was merciful. He sent down manna from heaven, little discs of bread, which were there in the morning, had gone by midday. And the people were able to survive. And they survived all the way up until the time that they crossed the Jordan and they were able to eat from the fruit of the land in Canaan, what would become Israel. Unfortunately, the people complained. And they actually much preferred what they'd left behind. In Numbers 11 we read, we remember the, verses 5 and 6, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. But that manna did what the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic could not do. It got them where they would not have gone otherwise. It got them to the promised land. And you know, friends, there's something better than manna that will get us from this world to the next world. Because that's what we need. If we don't eat of this manna, we'll stay in this world. And not only will we do that, we'll suffer the consequences of our sins. This is what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 31 to 35. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. Talking about the manna they ate in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you, that bread from, gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Do you want to be satisfied in this life and go to heaven in the next life? Isn't that a no-brainer? But what it means is being willing to admit that our fallen nature will lead us, lead us not just to the grave, not just to the first death, but to the second death in the lake of fire which will burn our souls forever and ever in indescribable torment. That is where our old nature will go. Yes, we can have like the people of Israel in Egypt, we can have the onions, we can have every delicacy, but it's more than that. We can indulge our souls, we can 
get to the top of our tree. We can do everything we like as our own master and pay the consequences because the Bible says that after death follows judgment. It's appointed unto a man once to die and then judgment. And that judgment will have one consequence, guilty, and one punishment, hell, or we can repent of our sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be lifted up and to sit with Christ in heavenly places. We can begin a journey now, today, we've heard it already, today is the day of salvation. We can begin a journey that will take us from this world to heaven if we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you must be born again. That's what the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 7. Ye must be born again. Why is that? Because we need a new nature. The old nature will take us down there. We need a new nature which Christ alone can give us, which will take us to heaven. When we have that new nature, we find ourselves feeding on Christ by faith as we believe in him. So we find the joy of his fellowship. We find his word comes alive. When I first read the Bible, after I became a Christian, the words of John's Gospel leapt off the page. And I suddenly understood them for the first time. That's what happens when the Spirit of Christ comes into our hearts when we are born again. Yes, it means being willing to deny ourselves. We have to be willing to say, okay, I'm giving up. I'm giving up the reins of my old life. I'm handing over to Jesus Christ. It's the most exciting journey you'll ever take. It's a journey that will be difficult. And you can't do it lightly. But it's a journey that has one certain end. And you need have no fear once you have committed your life to Christ. Because our verse today says, and this is for all of us, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. You see, the Lord Jesus isn't going to leave you just at being born again, as it were. He's going to lead you all the way to heaven. And his aim is to do a work that you and I could never do. It is to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The joy of the Lord Jesus is to see you and I presented faultless before the presence of his glory. And have you ever known joy before? I did not know joy before I became a Christian. There's an old hymn, I expect you sing it from time to time, called There's Joy in Serving Jesus. See, there's a joy in pain. There's a joy in suffering. There's a joy in times of hardship or sorrow because Christ is there with us in the boat. With Christ at the helm, he will sail us through every storm. He won't allow the little boats of our lives to be flooded over. No tragedy can befall us that the Lord has not allowed. 
There's a lovely verse in Romans 8, verse 28, which is true for the Christian, not the unbeliever. All things work together for good for them that, lo- to, for them that love God and are co- called according to his purpose. If you are a Christian, nothing can hurt you. Not even death can, help, can hurt you. Not even the worst disease can hurt you. Because even if it leads to your death, that is merely the separation of soul from body, and your spirit goes to be with the Lord Jesus. You can't lose as a Christian once you're in the hands of the Saviour. And my call to all of us is, let us, if we haven't already, make our peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ by acknowledging we are sinners, by repenting of our sin and believing that the Lord Jesus has paid for that sin on the cross. Let's be willing to turn our backs on our old lives, our old ambitions, and to give Christ our hearts that he might lead us. And he says, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, ye who are are heavy laden, Labour and a heavy laden. Just, just let me turn to that so that I don't misquote it. Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are two rests being spoken about. There is the rest for the sinner. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. Every person outside Christ is labouring and is heavy laden with the burden of sin. Christ alone can lift that burden from your shoulders. Christ alone can give you rest from your sin. And then there's the rest of service. Every day, as we walk with the Lord Jesus, we walk with a new spring in our step. No longer does life have its fears, because we have Christ with us. Take my yoke upon you. You see, there's always a, the yoke of sin is a very heavy yoke. It won't help you. It will drag you down. But the Lord Jesus' yoke is light. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, if you ride a horse, you know that if the tack isn't put on properly, or if it's ill-fitting, it'll rub, cause saddle sores. So it is with the burden of this world it sits heavily on us and it drags us down. But Christ lifts us up. Christ bears our burden. Christ teaches us how we can be more like him. He changes our natures. He changes the way we are. I am meek and lowly in heart. He's humble and he teaches us to be humble. And he gives us the rest that the journey of life needs.
And if you turn just finally to 1 John chapter 1, we'll close on this verse. First John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, this is what happens when we bear, when, when Christ leads us with his yoke, bearing his yoke, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. It's a wonderful thing, fellowship with Christians. None of us would be gathered together normally. We'd never join the same club, would we? But we find fellowship with each other because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that wonderful? See, as we follow the Lord Jesus, so his blood keeps us washed, keeps us clean. And we find a new joy, a new direction, a new hope, a new purpose in life serving the Lord Jesus. There's nothing better, friends. And I urge each one of us to take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and follow the Lord Jesus. And then we find ourselves with one who's able to keep us from falling and is able, willing, to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.